a man who is at peace with God and who knows that it is well with his soul. It may not be well with his body. We'll see that in verses 3 through 5 next week, Lord willing, but it is well with his soul. This is what we read, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for the strength and the perfection of your word. We ask you that uh, just as we sung together such words, uh, we might now sit under having read the word, now hearing the preaching of your word, and find that such feelings and such satisfaction is springing up in our own hearts, O God. And so strengthen your people now through the preaching of the word. We humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Having come now to chapter 5 of the book of Romans, we arrive at one of the great statements of this great book, verse 1. It's the kind of thing Christians like to recite for uh, a long time, I think, uh, I, I said this is my favorite verse in the Bible. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful statement. But it's more than a summary of what's come before. It's more like a conclusion. It strongly resembles what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's good reason for this. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. They're parallel and essentially say the same thing. For the emphasis that begins and uh, changes at this point in chapter 5 is sustained throughout chapter 8. So that chapters 5 through 8 form a new unit in the book of Romans. The emphasis has been upon As you remember, the wrath of God upon the sinner, which is revealed from heaven and evident in so many ways, on the one hand, and on the other, the justification of those very sinners. Chapters 1 through 4 outlines this very clearly for us. The reality of the wrath of God, as well as the reality of the revelation of righteousness and the justification of sinners. God is revealing these, or demonstrating these two things, both his wrath and his righteousness. And and this statement... Uh, which is, comprises chapters 1 through 4, ends with a very clear statement as to that doctrine, the doctrine of imputation or justification, which we saw last time in verses 24 and 25. That I'll just read verse 25, speaking of Christ who was delivered up because of our offenses and who was raised because of our justification. That's a very fitting summary of what we've been considering The wrath of God poured out on the Son on the cross. An eternal righteousness achieved in the resurrection by which we are justified. The righteousness which then is of faith and imputed to us when we believe in him. Him who raised Jesus, his son from the dead. And so we saw what justifying or saving faith is. And and more importantly, what God does that makes it possible for us to be saved and justified. Again, Christ has died for our sins and he's he's been raised for our justification. But chapter five, beginning with the word therefore, also chapter eight, beginning with the word therefore, 
begins to unfold the consequences of this doctrine of justification. This being true, Paul says, we having been justified, that is seeing this as an accomplished fact, something that is settled not only as a matter of argument, chapters 1 through 4, but also more importantly, as something that is settled in my own experience. Not only did Abraham believe and was justified, but I have believed and have been justified like him. Let us see what else is true of us, Paul is saying. In other words, what we find when we arrive at the word therefore is that you don't stop with justification. That is a fatal mistake. It does violence not only to the Christian life, but even to the doctrine of justification itself, which is so often distorted and misunderstood. We see Paul in chapters 6 and 7, again, as he was in the earlier chapters, dealing with the kinds of errors you find when you do this, when you fail to work out the doctrine. Or perhaps we could say, when you reason it out in the wrong way. And we will see those chapters, again looking at 5 through 8 as a new unit, we will see chapters 6 and 7 as a kind of parenthesis. Where he deals with the objections and he sets them aside. But in chapters 5 and 8, the bookends of this new section, the real emphasis emerges. The apostle is working out the doctrine of justification. He is telling us what is Uh, a result of being justified in such a way that he arrives at a confident assurance and nothing else. And so if we were to describe chapters 5 through 8, focusing especially on uh, chapters 5 through 8 and focusing on those two chapters 5 and 8 as a new section under a new heading, I would describe it as the certainty of salvation or our confident assurance as a result of our justification. John Murray, speaking of these verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, describes them as the consequences flowing from justification, which evoke, that is, again, in the experience, the conscious experience of the believer, realizing that we have been justified, evoking, he says, unrestrained rejoicing and assurance, therefore having been justified by faith. I find evoked within me unrestrained rejoicing and assurance. It is well with my soul. That's what Paul is expressing here. Mart Lloyd-Jones, the Christian is a man who should have assurance. It is the business of every Christian to have assurance. The apostle wrote these words in order to give us this assurance. And so that's the clear emphasis here in these two verses. And it's the emphasis he works out in this new section. Therefore, having been justified, let us see what else is true of us. What it leads to in our experience and our relation to God. What it evokes in the heart and the experience of the believer. In other words, if a man is really justified, how can you know? What else is true of him now that he's been made right with God? And the answer is, which is another question, does he have this assurance? Is he like Paul Paul describes here in chapter 5 verses 1 and 2? But let me notice first before we look at the consequences of justification, uh, this opening phrase, therefore having been justified by faith. The phrase having been justified is an aorist participle. I won't tell you what that means. I'll just tell you the force of it. The force of an aorist participle is that he is stating something as accomplished. It is a settled fact. It is finished. 
if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have been justified. You see, it's stronger than you are justified. You have been. It is something which is now true of you that can never not be true of you. It is something God has done for you that he cannot and will not undo. And really, if you're familiar with the arguments of Romans chapter chapters 5 and 8, you will immediately realize, yes, that's exactly what Paul is talking about, especially when he gets to chapter 8. He keeps working this idea out. God has done something for me now. And he has demonstrated something at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is absolutely uncertain and it is unshakable. Again, it is an act that he has done that he cannot and that he will not undo. Realize this about yourself. Realize the force of the heiress participle. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ savingly, if you have believed in him who raised Jesus from the dead, then you have been justified. The issues, in other words, of the final judgment, which God has been revealing all along, revealing his wrath from heaven, the fact that God is angry with the sinner and that God is and will judge the sinner for his sin. Something that will finally be resolved on the last day. Those issues have now been settled once and for all for the believer. He has been justified. He has been declared righteous. And so he will always be. God will not turn his back on the believer nor on his verdict. He will not change his mind. And nothing now can make him treat us otherwise than as his blessed sons, anticipating once again what he says in Romans chapter 8. Everything Paul will say in these two great chapters is just to underline and to underscore this certainty, this unshakability of our, of our salvation, what it means to have been justified by faith. So that's a good starting point. We have to realize what the phrase means. And then everything else will follow of necessity. He is describing what it means to stand in this position of unshakable certainty. And how sure we are meant to be as a result of it. Supposing once again, we know what faith is. And we've exercised saving faith in Jesus Christ. But uh, that, was, that was what chapter 4 was for. But that's, in the, that's behind us. We've, gra- we've grasped it. We have exercised faith. And now we want to see what else is true of us. In other words, you have to take the trouble uh, with this grand doctrine of justification by faith to apply it to yourself. We applied it to Abraham, but Paul is saying, apply it to yourselves. See what is true of you now that you have been justified. Now that you, along with Abraham, are enjoying this precious gift of justification bought with the blood and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Understand it not in a meager way, but in the fullest abundant sense of the term. And, 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 and recognizing then what it means to have been justified by faith or, or desiring to recognize its meaning in the fullest possible way, we begin to unfold it here in terms of four blessings, although it's certainly not limited to that. We have a long ways to go to unpack Just how wonderful the believer's position now is that he has been justified. But for now, in these two verses, four blessings which attend the blessing of justification or the the consequence of it. Four things which are inevitably and invariably true 
of the man who is justified. In other words, not an extraordinary experience of extraordinary believers, but the ordinary experience of ordinary believers. Things that the believer experiences himself as a result of being justified. And the first of these is peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're no longer talking about Abraham. We're talking about ourselves. John Murray says peace with God should be given preeminence in the blessings accruing from justification. In other words, as soon as you move from justification to the things which flow from justification, peace with God should be at the top of the list. It should be the first thing that comes to my mind. I, having been justified by faith, what is now true of me? I am at peace with God. God is at peace with me. So that's the great thing, and it should be stated first, always. The great issue that justification settles is my standing before God. And that is a a standing which has been radically altered and radically reversed. Formerly, as Paul reminds us in the earlier chapters, my standing and the standing of all who are not presently justified is defined by sin. Man is under sin. And he is treated as such. The consequence of his sin and his guilt is wrath. It isn't peace, you see, but it's wrath. The position of the sinner before God is one of condemnation. And God's disposition towards the sinner is one of wrath. A furious anger towards sin and the sinner, which the fires of hell will never extinguish. That's the great emphasis of Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20. And you can never understand Paul's teaching on justification and all that it means for the believer unless you start with what we've been calling the bad news, which explains the good news. You can never never understand why a man needs to be at peace with God until you understand how bad his situation was before he was. And especially, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 24, which immediately precedes what he says here, chapter 5, verse 1, that great reversal that occurred on the cross in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One who was condemned for us, for, for sin, for our sin, on the cross, but who being raised was declared righteous for our justification. The glorious reversal that occurs there. None of that will make sense. The true issues and concerns of the gospel. Until you understand what man's true position is in sin. And so let us see. And consider that position. Let us see that both sides are opposed. That is the true picture of the man in sin. It isn't just that I as a sinner am living in rebellion to God. Nor uh, can it be reduced to the fact that God is opposed to me and my sin. The alienation and hostility that sin brings about is comprehensive and pervasive on both sides. It fully affects both parties. The man in hell hates God every bit as much as God's wrath is ever poured out on him. And this mutual hostility is already being worked out. It's already being revealed in the active sense in the present time. On the one side, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven. Yes, But on the other side is what Paul later talks about in Romans chapter 8. And that is the enmity and the hostility of the man in sin. Let me just read one verse. Although the picture he paints is much bigger. He says the carnal man is enmity against God. Or at enmity. 
He is a God-hater. He is not subject to the law of God. He isn't subject to God in his own mind. In everything that he thinks and does, he reveals how he really feels about God. In other words, when we look at this mutual hostility, what we're really saying is that there's no peace. There's no peace on either side. There is only enmity. But Paul says here, here is the most amazing thing. And you really have to try to grasp it for yourselves. And that is when God justifies a sinner, there is peace. This is the great and glorious issue of justification. Peace where there was no peace. Peace where there was only enmity and hatred and animosity. A mutual opposition to one another. Two parties at odds completely and totally and radically. But now, Paul says, look at Christ on the cross and consider him in his resurrection. Look with faith and behold what God has done. Do you see it? He has made peace with his own blood. Peace where there was enmity. So also with his resurrection. He has reconciled fully two warring parties. And so that, Paul says, is the most obvious and important consequence of justification. It is that I am at peace with God and that he is at peace with me. And there is now, as a result of this, not the slightest trace of animosity or hostility on either side. Do you realize that, Paul is saying? Have you fully comprehended it for yourself, what it means to have been justified by faith? What is true of you now? And again, there are two sides to the peace, just as there were two sides to the war. Having been justified, this is the important emphasis, but it isn't the only emphasis. God is now at peace with me. Again, that's the more important side. Let us put, place the emphasis there. And everything, again, anticipating the argument that Paul will work out, beginning in chapter 5 through the end of chapter 8, everything now in the Christian life serves to confirm this for me. The fact that God is no longer against me, but now that he's for me. That isn't evident only in my justification. It's now evident for me in every way. Every aspect of his word, every aspect of his providence is a continual revelation from heaven of the love which he has for me. And so you see that in the place of something negative is placed something positive. Not only in the place of sin is placed righteousness by imputation and justification, but in the place of animosity is now placed love as a result of peace. Again, you go to chapter 8 and you find this. A great statement at the end of that chapter, or later on in chapter 5 in just a few verses. The thing that we are conscious of is the love that God has for the believer, which he has for me, I mean, as a believer. And, and, And the more and more I work this out, As a Christian, the more sure of it I become. That is what it means for God to be at peace with me. He has laid down his sword. He has nothing left of his condemnation, his hostility, his anger. He has only love and peace and reconciliation. And we are meant to live that out. And so on the other side of that, to capture the full meaning, I must realize at the same time, having been justified, I am at peace with God. 
Justification means that I am no longer God's enemy. I am his friend because he has befriended me. He has laid down his weapons and so I lay down mine. I can no longer harbor any animosity and enmity toward him in my heart. No, not now that he has justified me and not now that he has gone so far as to deliver his own son for my sin. I must of necessity love him and give my all to him. I must live and enjoy this newfound peace. Otherwise, in reality, I'm really ungrateful as a son. And I find, even to my own amazement, though I, though I go on sinning, that I do enjoy it. Formerly, I lived ill at ease with respect to God in this world. But now that I've been justified, I find that I am at ease. I find that I am enjoying this peace. The great issue between God and me is settled. And so everything now seems insignificant by comparison. Paul will say that as well in Romans chapter 8. My soul is no longer in constant turmoil at every cross providence or even at every sin that I commit. I do not secretly suspect that every trouble I face that God is against me. Nor do I dread to face the trials of life or even the greatest trial of all, death itself. None of them are able to unsettle me or rob me of this newfound peace. All of life suddenly takes on this happy frame for God is now on my side. He is no longer against me but for me. All was once wrong because of sin. But now it has been made right. Now there is peace with God and nothing is better than that. And how does it come? Well, Paul says through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Do not miss the importance of his work and of him. Though we've already seen it in the prior verse, we see it again in this verse. Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and his ongoing intercession. Again, we'll see that in chapter eight. We saw it in Hebrews. He is the, he is the author of our peace and he is the agent at the same time by which God settles our debts and offers terms of peace to the sinner, which is really, in effect, all that the gospel is. God saying to the sinner, here are my terms of peace. Will you accept them? Will you believe them? Will you place your trust in my son and his saving work? And so if anyone were to ever ask us, how then did this peace come to a sinner and this confident assurance? The answer would always be through Jesus Christ and his great work on the cross and in his resurrection. Exactly what we just saw in chapter four, verse twenty five. And so we never conceive of this peace apart from him. It's always through him and because of him. And that is the emphasis you constantly see in Romans. But having stressed that, we see the next step or blessing being this. Paul doesn't end there. He begins with peace, but he goes on. Through whom we have access by faith into this grace. That is, through Jesus Christ once more, we have and enjoy something we could not otherwise enjoy. For he is the mediator and source of every blessing the Christian enjoys. And what is this second blessing? Well, Paul calls it access by faith into this grace. You know, that is a bit of a strange phrase, if you think about it. Access by faith into this grace. What does that mean? I would have expected Paul to say, and I secretly always imagined him to say, 
They also found some of the commentators almost forcing him to say that I have access by faith into the presence of God. But that isn't actually what he says. Of course, we read that elsewhere in Scripture, but that isn't what he says here. What he actually says is that we are, having been justified through the gracious ministry of Jesus Christ on our behalf, access or granted access into this grace. And what does that mean? It means that we are put in a position we did not formerly enjoy. A door is suddenly opened and we find that we've gone through. We have, uh, we have been given access to that which was formerly out of reach and even barred to us. Namely, this grace. We have access into this grace. This grace was something we couldn't have but for him. We couldn't ever access it on our own. But now because of him, we have accessed it. And what is this grace? Well, it is the grace, very obviously, of justification and the peace which attends it. Realize everything Paul is describing here has to do with our newfound position with respect to God. Our position now is not one of wrath, not now that we have been justified. It is not one which is determined by the law. But it is a position which is determined by grace. And so peace and righteousness and all that attends it. Oh, but in sin we have no access to this, Paul is saying. Again, it lay entirely outside of our reach. But now by Christ, he says, the grace of justification and the peace of God. We have obtained it. We have access into it. We have not only access, but a full right to it and a full possession of it. Christ has brought us here and now we are enjoying it. Which leads to a consideration of the third blessing connected with the second. Which comes out still more clearly. And do you notice how all of these things are connected together and they build upon one another. And that is that we are standing in this grace into which we have access through Christ. He says... This is verse 2, through whom we have also we have access by faith into this grace in which we are standing. That's the phrase I want to emphasize is the third blessing. That we not only have access to the grace, but we are standing in it. It isn't as though Paul is saying, using this word access, that it is somehow within our grasp because of Christ. But having access into this grace, Paul says, Christ has caused us to stand in it. Which is a most important point because it captures the whole emphasis which begins in chapter 5. That the position of the Christian having been justified and having this grace mediated to him by Jesus Christ fully and finally. Is that he is standing in the grace of justification and peace with God. He isn't wavering with respect to it. Because it doesn't depend on him. It depends fully on God and on his son. And this is the gift of God. It is that we should stand, beloved, in the gift and in the grace of justification. That our feet should forever be placed upon the ground of this grace and never be moved. It's the same truth that we find later on in Romans chapter 5. The same chapter when he describes 
the parallel existences of man. Either he's in Adam or he's in Christ. Once I was in Adam, Paul says, but now I'm in Christ. I'm placed into him. I am standing in him and that determines everything. But the wonderful thing about standing in this grace is that you cannot undo it. You cannot fall down. You can take a man out of Adam, but you cannot take him out of Christ. Once he has begun to stand there in Christ, there he will forever stand. That is the sense of this phrase. We have through him access into this grace in which we stand. Likewise, Romans chapter 6, where he contrasts being under the law or under grace. And he tells the believer that we're now under the law. Or excuse me, we're under grace, not the law. We're standing in grace. It's the same idea. And once again, the same point can be made. You can take a man out from under the law. But you can never take a man out from under grace. Once he is there, he will always stand there. Not by his own strength, you see, but by grace. By the grace by which he has been made to stand there. By the gracious mediation of Jesus Christ. It is always through him. And because it is through him, it is certain, it is final, it is everlasting. Having been justified, you see, we are now able through him to stand in this grace. Which he has given to us. And now I will never fall from it. I will never fall from grace. But there is one further blessing to consider. And that is that we are made to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Which I know the second one I said was a bit difficult. But this is harder still. It is a difficult truth to express. What does it mean to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? Not as an isolated statement, but as uh, seen as a result of having been justified. But it's all part of the same picture. This glorious picture of the man who's been justified, the man who is standing in the grace of justification, and who is as a result at peace with God, now and forever. Paul says here is a man who's also rejoicing. And I do not need to tell you why he is. If only he has grasped all that Paul has been saying to this point, then he has ample reason to rejoice in God. But here Paul uh, is especially concerned not to emphasize the generic character of his rejoicing, though he might have, but to emphasize that his joy is placed in the hope of the glory of God. And what does that mean? And what in particular does that idea have to do with justification? What, in other words... Is it about having been justified that makes a man to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? Well, here's where we need to understand the mind of Paul a little bit. As it will later be revealed in chapter 8. And we read these verses earlier. And we'll get a clear sense of what he means by our hope in the glory of God. The word hope and then glory or glorified occurs a lot in those verses. You may have noticed that. And there he really is just explaining the way in which we are hoping in the glory of God. But what does it mean? He speaks of the glory of God as something to be revealed, which makes sense. You're hoping for something that is yet to be revealed, something that you don't presently possess or something you haven't seen. But Paul is saying, 
or describing in chapter 8, that it will be seen and it will come into full view, both in the eyes of the world, but more importantly, in the experience of the believer, namely the glory of God. And this great event is the end of the age, when believers are perfected and glorified in the resurrection. And so the hope of the glory of God is the resurrection. It is the glorification of believers. It is the end of the process of salvation which begins in justification. And so he speaks in Romans chapter 8, in the final verses we read, of believers not only having been justified, but having been glorified. And the anxious longing and, uh, and hope which they have for this great event. But the point that we're meant to see is that the hope itself is intimately connected with justification. For again, as he says in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Well, let me read those verses, actually. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. He makes a leap from justification to glorification. He is describing in those verses more fully what he alludes to in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And that is the vital connection between justification and glorification. Namely, to have one is to have the other made certain to us. To be justified is to be made certain with respect to our glorification. The believer is one, Paul says, who has been justified. But do you also see, you can even say he's been glorified too. He says that in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Not in actual experience. We're still hoping for it. We're still longing for it. But in principle. Because to have justification carries with it the certainty of our future glorification. As though we already possessed it. As though it's already been accomplished and in our possession. Well, it is by faith, Paul says. It is so certain to us. Justification and glorification are linked together by an unbreakable bond. And what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5 verse 2 is that as soon as you have been justified, you realize this for yourself. You see the inevitability and the certainty of your own future glorification. And you, re- and you begin to rejoice in the hope of it. The fact that you've been justified makes you certain. And this thought makes you to begin to rejoice as you look forward to it happening. Those who have been re- uh, justified rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so everything here describes the state of confident assurance. These four blessings. Paul is speaking to the man who has been justified. And he's saying to him, do you see what else is true of you? Do you see how these things inevitably follow? Not an extraordinary experience, but an ordinary one. Perhaps you do not see it yet. Perhaps you're not rejoicing in hope of the glory of God or enjoying fully this peace with God and standing in this grace. But I'm telling you, as Martin Lloyd-Jones told his congregation, that you are meant to see it and you are meant to enjoy it and you are meant to rejoice in this confident hope and expectation of the great things that God will do. For that is what it means to be justified by faith. 
Everyone who's been justified by faith is meant to enjoy this assurance, this confident expectation. And he is meant to enjoy it not merely in the realm of intellectual knowledge, but as his own conscious experience. What did John Murray say? Uh, The evocation of unrestrained rejoicing and assurance. That is a description of a man who's been justified by God and who knows it. And who knows and enjoys all that it involves. A man who has faith and by faith perceives and delights in the work of God in his own soul. He is conscious of being at peace with God. And he is standing firmly and forever in this grace. And as a result, he is rejoicing in confident hope of the glory of God to be revealed to him in the resurrection. And to the one who knows this is, this is true... But seize all this, but dimly, I say, use your faith. For we are not only justified by faith, but Paul says, we have access into this grace by faith in which we stand. Likewise, we also rejoice in hope. Hope which is strongly connected to faith. Hope being our faith in future things. And so faith, as Paul says in chapter 4, is the key which unlocks every door and makes every blessing ours. And perhaps if you lack these things, or at least in the realm of conscious experience, it is because you lack faith. Or perhaps because, again, to use the language of Romans chapter 4, it is because your faith is weak. And it is being weakened in doubt through unbelief. And so you aren't exercising your faith. And to you, I, I say what Jesus said to his disciples. Where is your faith? But if you have faith, and if you are placing your faith in the God who raised his son from the dead, then I assure you, you will have these other things as well. You will have peace with God. You will have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And you will be rejoicing in hope of the glory of God always and evermore. And let us, as believers, be satisfied with nothing less than this in our own experience and enjoyment of God's salvation and his son. Amen. Let us now come to the table.